It is truly an honor to be here with you this morning. Uh, whether you're on our Candidate with Campus or online campus, it is exciting to be able to come and celebrate it, our risen Lord. Amen, church? Come on. There's an old church tradition that I like to do every year. Uh, it's been around for, for centuries, literally. Uh, it is, I'm going to say he is risen, and you'll respond, he's risen indeed. Okay, do we have it? Let's, we'll, let's, let's do a trial, okay? He's risen. He's risen. All right, now we're going to do it next time like we really know he's risen, okay? So I'm going to yell it out. Let's do it. He's risen. risen. All right, we can do better than that. He's risen. risen One more time. Blow out the ears of the person next to you. He's risen. risen (laughs) You bet he has. You bet he has. Praise the Lord. Well, the message I'm going to deliver to you this morning, I want you to know from the outset, is not fancy. It's meat and potatoes. Or since it's Easter, ham and potato salad. It's, it's going to answer the question, why do we celebrate the resurrection? Why do we gather on Resurrection Sunday? And, and why, do we, why do we celebrate the resurrection? And to answer the question, we really need to go back to the beginning. The very beginning. In Genesis, we, we discover that the original couple rebelled against God. And sin entered the world. When we say sin entered the world, that's a general way of saying that sin entered into all of humanity. That's that's you and me. And we need to understand that it's not that we're sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That when sin entered the world, that the world was marred. Everything in it, all of of creation. And so that, that made a dilemma. Because God is a just God. And so God needed to judge justly sin. And so here's the problem. Human beings are unable to satisfy the just demands of God. And to make it a more sobering reality, God is going to be true to his word and his character. None of us would want to worship a God who is a liar. No one would want to worship a God who is inconsistent. And so the reality of it is the fact that he's a just God is a powerful thing. But I think everyone in this room would, would admit, at least, at least I'll just speak for myself, I like it when God is just toward you. <laughs> but not necessarily so much when he's just toward me. And so we see that God is really faced with what in our minds would be an irreconcilable dilemma. God's going to be true to his character. He's going to be true to his word. And yet he wants to redeem the creation, you and I, who he desperately loves. So how is he going to do that? Well, here's God's solution. God solved this seemingly irreconcilable dilemma through the unique work of the unique person of Jesus Christ. The unique work of the unique person of Jesus Christ What's the unique work of Jesus? Jesus came to do one work. Jesus came to do one work, and that is salvation. In fact, the name God gave his son before he was born uh, says it all. Uh, we read that, that an angel appears to Joseph, Matthew one twenty one, and this is what the angel says. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Think about it. Jesus is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew name Joshua, which means the Lord saves. So right there in the very name of Jesus is the reason he came. His one unique work from this unique person, Jesus, was to bring salvation. 
God worked through Christ so that he could be both just and the justifier of the one who places their faith in Christ. Just and justifier. What's that mean? Well, he's just. God is true to his word and character. So what's he do? He sends this unique person, Jesus, to do this unique work of salvation so he can be the justifier, making us right with him. But it's to those who have what? Faith in Jesus. So when we look at God's work of salvation, we find that there's a divine act. God works to, to be both the just and justifier by sending Jesus, but there's a human reaction, isn't there? In fact, it's interesting, and, and when I share this with people, sometimes they're surprised. The one thing that God requires of humanity, the one thing God requires from you and me, you go, there's tons of things. No, there's really only one. That's faith. Faith, belief, trust in Jesus. That's the one thing he requires us when we look at the entirety of Scripture. And so here's the point. Unless Jesus was a unique person he was, he could have not have done the unique work he did. So God's salvation is for all people, but found only in one person. Jesus Christ is salvation. For us to truly understand this work of Christ and salvation, we need to understand his humiliation and his exaltation. That's what I want to look at together this morning. His, his humiliation and his exaltation. Now, I'm going to write this up here and use the whiteboard. Um, as you see me do that, you'll wonder why. Because my handwriting is horrible. And my spelling can be bad, so if it gets phonetic, you'll know why. Um, my English teachers historically would, in every class I had, go, what is going on with this guy? But uh, So if you're an English teacher, I apologize ahead, ahead of time. Uh, that's exaltation. There we go. That's exaltation. It's spelled right. You just can't read it right. So there it is. So there's a humiliation and exaltation of Jesus Christ. And Paul writes of this in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Let me read it for us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians 2 or just follow, follow along up on the screen. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the first thing that Paul points out to us is that Jesus is God. And, and we need to understand that from the very beginning because we, we don't, won't comprehend his humiliation if we don't start from understanding that Jesus is God, that everything that he did was by design. It was his choice. In fact, often we'll see in the, in the, in the Gospels that he, he'll say I, I, he didn't turn himself over to them because it wasn't his time, making it known that he was in control of the situation. They may have thought they were in control of the situation, but he was actually in control of the situation. Jesus is God. So our Savior began his, his track, if you will, from the heights of undiminished glory to to this humiliation that, that he chose on our behalf. And so we're going to look at his descent and the humiliation, and it really begins at the incarnation or his birth. The incarnation. 
Now, what am I talking about here? Well, incarnation literally means enfleshment. And Jesus took upon his divinity, humanity. Now, what's that really mean? Well, in a very simple way, hard to wrap our minds around, he did not cease to be God, but put humanity upon his divinity. His divinity. Now, think about that for a minute. That meant that because he's walking among us, in fact, I like the way that one Bible translation, John chapter 1 words, they said, Jesus moved into our neighborhood. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? One of the amazing things as he moves into our neighborhood is that he suffered some of the things that we take for granted. Like, he would have suffered getting a splinter. And for you and I, that just seems like normal stuff, but for God, not so much. He would have went through all the the challenges that we go through. In fact, he he would have stubbed his toe on a rock. Anyone ever stubbed their toe? We take that for granted. Someone does, are you okay? It's it's just only a stubbed toe. This is God who humiliates himself. He's born in such modest means, isn't he? Born in a stable. Humiliation for our behalf. And I want to just make this clear. If the second person of the Trinity had not emptied himself by adding a human nature to his divine nature thus becoming the unique God-man, human beings, you and I, could never have been saved. In fact, the virgin conception was apparently a theological requirement, making it possible for the Messiah to be shielded from inherited sin and yet enter into our sinful race. That's why he did it the way he did it. He's sinless, not marred by the same sinful nature that you and I have. And he did it so that he could bring salvation to us. The Messiah needed to be separated from the sin of sinful humanity while still being a member of it. And one of the verses that this speaks so clearly of his coming and, and this idea of incarnation and, and the next step in his humiliation really is my favorite Christmas verse. And it's not from the Gospels, it's from Hebrews. And it gives us the very words of Christ when he entered into the world. Like, wouldn't you like to know, like, what, what was Jesus thinking as he puts humanity upon his divinity? And, and the good news is we know exactly what he was thinking. We know exactly what he was saying. Listen to Hebrews 10, 5 through 7. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, here's his words, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God as it is written in the scroll of the book. So as Jesus is, is taking humanity upon himself and, and, and being born, right? And this modest means in a, in a stable. He, he shares what's on his mind and he knows that two things. Number one, that all the sacrifices that were done up to the point of his coming were only foreshadows of his coming. That, that although in those sacrifices they would try to pick a perfect animal, none of those animals were actually perfect. They were just better than the others. And they had to make those sacrifices over and over and over again. And Jesus says, I've come to be the one and only sacrifice. The only true perfect sacrifice. The only sacrifice that's going to be pleasing to the Father. But he also says, I come to to live a life of obedience. And so we find that that's, that's the second part of Christ's humiliation. He comes to live this life of obedience so that we could have a relationship with him through Jesus Christ, through God, through Jesus Christ. See, here's the reality. If, if Jesus had only taken on humanity upon himself and lived the perfect life, however, 
That would just be a mockery. In other words, he had just come, he was born for us, that would be loving. And if he lived this perfect life, that'd be quite the example. But if he did that and said, guys, I'll see you later, and headed up, it would be a mockery to us. You say, well, why is that? Well, all we got to do is look at the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. Look at the law. It's a mockery to us. What do you mean by mockery? None of us live up to it. Anyone in this room, don't lift up your hand. I don't want you lying in church. But anyone in this room say they've kept the Ten Commandments perfectly? If you raise your hand, you're a liar, which means you haven't, because that's one of the commandments, right? And so it's sort of a mockery. We realize we can't. We fall short. Well, look at Jesus' life. He gives us an example of what it means to live perfectly. Like there are those who, who spew hatred on him, and he responds in perfect love. Anyone find that challenging? Anyone falling short like me in that one? So if he had just come and, and gave us this perfect life and said, hey, I'll see you later, it would be a mockery to us. However, Jesus did more than that. Now, understandingly so, none of us in this room, none of us who are listening online, no one in the world who's ever lived or ever will live will be able to do the messianic ministry of Jesus. No one can be a perfect means to please God. None of us. And that's bad news and good news. The good news is we don't have to. In fact, I've already alluded to this, but let me say it again. There's only one thing God requires of us, and it's sufficient. Only one thing God requires of us, and it's sufficient. And that's to trust God for what he's done for us. Here's, here's the point. The life of Christ alone, which qualified him to die for us, means only death to us unless his death, he prepares us to receive his life. You say, well, Craig, that's a complicated sentence. Well, let me put it this way. There's no resurrection with God apart from the death of Christ. And so the, the very bottom of the humiliation is the cross. That God himself, God himself, not only came in humble means and was born, took upon his divinity, humanity, not only lived this life of obedience to the Father, where people ridiculed him, where people uh, put him down, where people uh, spoke poorly of him, beat him, and then crucified him. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he the Father made him the incarnate Son to be sin, who knew no sin on our behalf. Christ's work in taking away our sin was really an exercise in simple exchange. Think about it. God legally placed our penalty upon Jesus, our guilt, our shame, our debt, and he paid in our stead. That's an exchange. Catch this. Our sin cannot be in two places at one time. Since Christ bore our sin, those who, who receive him are free from sin. In fact, we, we find this so clearly in, in the one verse that, that really summarizes the whole of Scripture, John 3.16. Many of us are familiar with it. For God so loved the world, you and me, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, when we, when we look at what God has done for us, we understand that there's this, this divine act and a human reaction. The divine act, God sent his son Jesus Christ to die for us, the human reaction to receive, to believe, to have trust, to have faith. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. In fact, he stated that he had done it so well, so unequivocally on the cross, he says what? It is finished. Debt paid. Taken care of. Those who trust in him. 
See, sin separated us from God, and, and death means separation. Physical death is a separation from, from the body, of, in, from the spirit. And spiritual death is a separation from the person with God. And eternal death is eternal separation from a person from God forever. So the Father sent Jesus and arranged for him to die to rescue us from what? Eternal death. <laughs> that we wouldn't have to pay that price. Romans 3.23. For all short, fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us is on equal standing before the cross. What's that mean? It means you may be sitting here and saying, you know, I'm not as bad as that person across the row from me. Yeah. Or you may be sitting here saying, I'm, I'm the worst person in this room. And you know what? It doesn't matter. Any finite act against an infinite God has infinite consequences. We're all on equal footing at the cross. We all fall short of the glory of God. What's that glory of God mean? We're image bearers of God. We all fall short of being image bearers of God. You know that. I know that. There's moments when I look at the life of Christ and go, I didn't react in that situation that way. Or even if I did, I wasn't thinking it that way. We fall short. And that's bad news when we look, read the first part of Romans 6.23 because it says, for the wages of sin is death. We talked about what death is. It's, it's eternal separation from God. And so really what that verse says is what we've worked really hard to get is death. For the wage of sin is death, but, I love the second part of 623, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus came to give us life. He, he, he was born, humiliated himself by, by taking on his divinity, humanity, and then he lives this life of obedience where although he's, he's, he's preaching love and being an example of love, people are putting him down, eventually beating him to where people don't even recognize him. And he dies a criminal's death on the cross for you, and for me. And when he does that, he does something quite amazing. He, he takes two things from us. He takes our guilt. And he takes our shame. I mean, what's that really look like? Well, I already said my English teachers were always just a little disappointed in me. Okay? My art teachers were more so. So I'm going to show you by a diagram. Just to sort of impress you with my artwork here. This, by the way, is you. That's your, that's your picture. This is, show, this is your guilt and shame. God took our guilt and shame and placed it upon Jesus on the cross. And when he did that, those who received Christ as Lord and Savior, he eliminated our guilt, he eliminated our shame. Go on. And you say, well, I may feel it. Well, if you're feeling it and you're in Christ, then that's all you're feeling. It's not who you are. He took it from you, and he took it completely. And scripture rarely mentions, however, the humiliation of Christ without talking about his exaltation. His exaltation. In fact, uh, Christ, when he talks about his humiliation when he was on earth and, and sharing with us the, the truth of who he was and who he is, and, and who he's and what he's going to do for us, always shared both his humiliation and his exaltation to give us a well-rounded understanding of his work toward us. And so I read the first part of 2 Corinthians 5.21. Let me read the whole thing for us. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that, here's the purpose, in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
How's that possible? Because Jesus took our sin on the cross. And as we identify with him, not only does he take our sin, we become God's righteousness. That's who we are in Jesus. Now, I understand that we still make mistakes. We still struggle with that. If you're like me, you're still on the journey of becoming like Jesus. Anyone still on the journey of becoming like Jesus? I haven't arrived yet, but I'm not what I used to be. God's still working in me. But positionally, I am God's righteousness in Jesus Christ. And if you've received the Lord Jesus in your life, you too are his righteousness. Why? Because when he sees you, he sees you through the lens of Jesus. Who already died on the cross and took away your guilt and took away your shame. Think about it. God took our guilt and shame so that unrighteous people, you and I, who need to be forgiven of sin due to being unrighteous in him are made righteous. Think about it. In Christ, we become functioning human beings again. Forgiveness is a prerequisite for functioning, and functioning is the goal of forgiveness. In Christ's death, removing our guilt and shame, and Christ's gift of his spirit, and now allows for us once again to be functioning human beings in right relationship with him. And not only did he die for our sins, but God raised Jesus from the dead. The resurrection inaugurated Christ's exaltation. And so it's this, it's this resurrection that begins this, this exaltation of Christ. And, and we realize that I was thinking just if the, if the devil, if social media was around when this all happened, the devil might have posted on Saturday, hey, by the way, I won. Not realizing Sunday was coming. The tomb was empty. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the second phase of, of really Christ's salvific work. Think about it. If there's no resurrection, there's really no gospel and no good news. If there's no resurrection, there's really no gospel and no good news. You say, what do you mean? Well, Paul explains it to us in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, let me just read a couple of verses, 3 and 4. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He'll go on to explain that if the resurrection didn't happen, then there's four natural consequences. The first is this, that those who preach the gospel are doing it in vain. Why? Because it's good news that Jesus loved us so much that he humiliated himself by being born, living a perfect life, and dying on the cross. But if he isn't a risen Savior, then we're not saved. We just know that he loved us. And so this message I would share, if there was no resurrection, there'd really be no purpose in sharing it, because all I would say real quickly is, well, God loves you, but he really hasn't done much to save you. The second thing is he says that the preachers would be false witnesses. In other words, they'd be lying. Why? Because Paul says he saw the risen Savior. We, we build the gospel upon the apostles who said we saw the risen Savior. And if they're sharing about a risen Savior who's not alive, then they're just liars. No purpose in even listening to them. Thirdly, he says, if the resurrection didn't happen, then faith in Christ is worthless and, and we're still in our sin. That he might have died for our sin, but it really didn't do anything. Because death still had victory over him. Remember the wage of sin is death? Fourthly, those who died hoping in Christ are still dead, and those believing now in Christ are fit objects of pity. And why does Paul say that? Because he wants everyone to understand the resurrection has happened. And it's changed everything. So when we look at why we celebrate the resurrection, we, we find the greatest love story of all. 
A God who didn't just say he loved us, but showed us by humiliating himself, but didn't, didn't just humiliate himself, he was exalted, but he gives us life, and that his resurrection shows us a life that we can have in him. Here's the gospel truth. The res- resurrection of Christ indicates that God's plan for salvation of the human race, you and me, includes our resurrected bodies, eternal life. Now next week, we're going to look at two other things. We're going to look at, we're going to look at his ascension, and we're going to look at a word called session, which is a word that basically means the seating of Christ. We're going to talk about what power do we have as believers now that we're in Christ. But for now, I, I, we've been working on answering a question, haven't we? Why have we gathered here to celebrate the resurrection? Why have we gathered on this resurrection Sunday? We started by looking at the problem of sin and we began to look at the, the work of Christ in our life, that, that God's purpose for all of us was to be in a right relationship with him. That's why we exist. Now the problem is, is that our wrongness, sin, keeps us from experiencing that relationship. And so God did this divine act, his remedy. He sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who was born of modest means, lived the perfect life so he could die on the cross for our sins and be resurrected for our salvation. That's the act of God's love toward us. But it really does require a response, a human reaction to receive Christ in faith. In fact, a genuine Christian is a person who honestly surrenders her life to Jesus. And these words that were written by John nearly 2,000 years ago, John 1.12, echo is true today. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who received him. You say it can't be that easy. Well, it wasn't. Jesus did all the heavy lifting for us. We are called to believe, to trust, to have faith. I'm going to pray in just a moment. And in my prayer, I'm going to celebrate the fact that in a genuine sense, we as believers have been risen with Christ also. Risen in the sense of all for new life in him. Eternal life in him that begins the moment we say yes to Jesus. But also as I pray, I'm going to pray a prayer very similar to what I prayed many years ago when I received Christ as Lord and Savior. And if you're sitting, whether on a Canandaigua campus or part of our online community, as I pray that prayer, maybe that's your prayer this morning as you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. I believe there's some who are ready to do that. Perhaps this is your moment. But I want to say something about the prayer. There's no power in the prayer itself. There's no power even in the words. It's, it's our faith. It's our belief. It's our trust. That's what makes us right with God. That's receiving what Jesus has done for us is what makes us right with God. And so as I pray in just a moment, if this is your prayer, if it's the desire of your heart, I just ask that you would just in the quietness of where you're seated, just say, Lord, that is my prayer. I want to be in a right relationship with you. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ because through his loving act, his death and resurrection, we have life in him. Amen, church? Let's pray. Lord, I know that there is wrongness, sin in my life, and I need your forgiveness. I was made to be in a loving relationship with you, and I want that relationship right now. I believe that Jesus died in my place. He paid the penalty for my sin and rose again for my salvation. Therefore, I want to turn away from my sin. I want to enter into that relationship with you. 
through Jesus Christ. I invite you to come into my heart and life in the name of Jesus. And Father God, we're told in Scripture that when just one person makes that decision to enter into that relationship with you through Jesus Christ, that all of heaven begins to throw a party. I believe there's more than one individual in here who's made that decision. I believe there's several who have taken that step of faith. And there's a party in heaven right now on their behalf. And Lord God, we who are sitting here, we're celebrating with the, our angelic hosts. We, we celebrate with them, those who have made a decision to enter into that relationship with you. In fact, Lord God, as, as we're here this morning celebrating the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as we're here on this Resurrection Sunday, we thank you so much for loving us so profoundly, for not just saying it, but taking a difficult road for us by taking humanity and placing it upon your divinity, being born in such modest means in a stable, living a perfect life of obedience, but as you live this perfect life, being mocked and scorned, eventually beaten, and crucified. Lord God, you paid a debt you did not owe. You paid our debt that we, we could never pay. Thank you for dying in our stead. Thank you, Lord God, that you died for our sins, that the wage of sin is death and you paid for it. And so, Lord God, we get the gift of life as we receive you as Lord and Savior. We celebrate you, our risen Lord. We celebrate the new life we have in you. We celebrate with those who even this morning have taken that step of faith and are going to begin to experience that new life they have in you. It makes a difference in our present as you begin to fill us with your peace and your power. That in the midst of a world filled with chaos, you even begin to use us to bring those things into those situations. That you would be glorified. Father God, thank you for the work you've done in our life, the work you're doing in our life, and we praise you that one day you're going to come back and take us home. You are our risen Savior, and we thank you, for you have risen, and you have risen indeed. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.